Brave Spaces is, is where we allow young people to be in the work, to take ownership in the work, to be active, right? To be taking risk. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Education for Sustainable Democracy. My name is Brett Levy, and I'm a researcher of civic and environmental education and an associate professor of education at the University at Albany, State University of New York. On this episode, I speak with Quasi Burgess a veteran middle school teacher in the City School District of Albany here in upstate New York. Dr. Burgess recently earned his doctoral degree at the University at Albany, and his dissertation closely examined how one seasoned African-American educator supported the literacy learning of the black boys in his classroom. In our conversation, Dr. Burgess and I discuss how literacy learning is intertwined with civic education and how teachers can create positive classroom cultures that encourage broad and meaningful participation. We also discuss Quasi's personal journey and how he is using what he learned in his dissertation study. Please stay tuned to hear all the wisdom that Quasi has to share. If you're new to this show, welcome, and please be sure to subscribe. To find other episodes and more information about the show, please visit esdpodcast.org. There are more than 35 other episodes of this podcast, including episodes on youth participatory action research, broad efforts to improve civic education, methods of fostering students' media literacy, and much more. Please check them out again at esdpodcast.org. Also, in the show notes, you can find links to my open access articles and to resources related to this show's topic. Thank you for your support. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Quasi Burgess. Quasi, it's great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Listen, thank you so much for having me here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here. So, Quasi, today I'd like to talk to you about what you learned from your dissertation. But before we dig into that, could you tell us about your own journey? What led you into a teaching career and what and where are you teaching now? Yeah. What led me to my teaching career? So I'm originally from South America in Guyana. And so I moved here to the States in 2001. And, you know, my family came here for you know, economic, you know, educational opportunities and so on and so forth. I went to school in the Albany District where I had a lot of people that really had my back, really supported me, really allowed me to be the best version of myself. Specifically, you know, the difficulties of learning a whole new culture was something that I needed to learn how to navigate. Before I went to college, I did a program in Albany City Schools where my last year, I was able to work with a teacher for a full year. So I was like her teaching assistant for a full year. And I loved that experience. And so there's also, I had experiences, you know, working with the Boys and Girls Club and PAL and different organizations, working with kids. And I realized that I had a way to kind of get and reach some of the most challenging kids and some of the kids that needed people for them to be there. And so I decided to study that. And I also wanted to give back to the same community that poured into me, you know, coming from the Guyana, going throughout high school and middle school here. And so that's what landed me back in Albany, teaching at Albany City Schools. Um, I taught for a little bit in the charter school in the, in the community. And eventually, through working with my, my kids and the population that I serve, I wanted to do better. I wanted to learn more. And that's what landed me into the 
doctoral program at U of I attended your dissertation defense a couple of months ago, which was really great. It was a fantastic, exciting event with a lot of people there to support you and listen to you and learn from you. Could you tell us about your overall dissertation and what it was about? Yeah. You know, from my experiences as a teacher, I noticed that many of my Black boys, you know, would come into my school, my classroom at the beginning of the year, and I would have surveys and I would say, hey, like, who likes reading? And many of the Black boys would say, no, I don't like reading. And that that was something that always stuck out to me. And so I usually issue a challenge to them, like, listen, by the end of the year, you're going to have an experience with reading and you're going to love it. How much you want to bet? And so they'll be like, oh, I want to bet. I want to bet because I'm not going to <laughs> love reading. And I think mm-hmm. what they're drawing from is not the potential or the opportunity to fall in love with reading, or really their experiences that they've had with teachers or experience, or you know literacy experiences that might not have been so hot. And so, so there was some of that happening. And you know, when I decided to go for my doctorate, I wanted to look at how do I improve the literacy experiences of Black boys. I wanted to look at how can their academic outcomes be improved? And so after looking at so many research uh, in what have been studied in the field, I decided that I wanted to look at Black boys' literacy experiences, but through a, a social cultural kind of perspective. And what that means is just that how do they learn literacy? How do they share literacy in a social context, right, within mm-hmm. a group of people in a setting? And Mm -hmm. additionally, I wanted to look at some of the instructional practices of a Black male teacher and how does that support those Black boys in their literacy development. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, from that exploration, I was able to really see some of the instructional practices that were really effective. And then the Black boys' experiences and how they reported their previous experiences and how they it reported their experience throughout the study. So I kind of explored that and, and talked about how we can learn from that as educators. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Thanks. So you were studying literacy among Black boys, and it seems to me that literacy is a vital part of democratic life. I'm yeah. wondering what your thoughts are on why literacy is so important for preparing people for life in a democratic society. Yeah. So oftentimes when we think of literacy, we think of it in terms of like traditional literacy, right? So we think about like Mm -hmm. reading and writing. And schools oftentimes prioritize reading and writing as literacy. And so when you ask a student if they think that they're a literate being, they might say, nah, I mean, I don't like reading. I don't like writing. But then when you look at some of the, the, the literacy practices that they engage in outside of school, you realize that there's such value there, right? There's sophisticated literacy practices that they engage in just in their daily life that are just not captured within the the written curriculum or the school curriculums, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but it's critically important to democratic life because, you know, sharing of ideas, right, is how we, we move uh, a society forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, reading does play a role, writing does play a role, but then there's also about like, how do they express their ideas and their thoughts, right? So, you know, right now we're at a podcast. This is a democratic practice because we're sharing knowledge in a way that 
many people can access it. And so mm-hmm. a lot of our, uh, some of the youths in my, my study shared that they were a part of, um, they had a YouTube channel. That's just some ways that they're able to demonstrate their knowledge to a broader audience, right? So I definitely mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. literacy as a whole does play a critical part in, in civics mm-hmm. in, in, in a democratic society because mm-hmm. it's about how you interpret, how you get information, right? You know, I recently read into um, one of my neighbors and he was talking about newspapers. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, we need to, these kids need to learn about, need to read the newspapers. I'm, uh, I don't know why they stopped bringing newspapers and current events. And I was like, you know, I heard what he was saying. There's something valuable about reading a tangible newspaper. But mm-hmm. there's also been an evolution in how people obtain information at this point. And so reading online, podcasts, YouTubers, videos, online news recordings and things like that. So there's been a change in how we, we get information. And mm-hmm. so it's important that we recognize that how we get information, how do you interpret information is one part of literacy, but also the ways that we demonstrate our knowledge through social media, which is a form of new literacy, right? When we write a post, a provocative post on Facebook or or we share a picture on Instagram that provokes a meme on Instagram that provokes discussions, that too is civic engagement. So, Mm -hmm. Thank you. Given the central role of literacy in civic participation and civic learning, I'm wondering if you could talk about what you learned broadly from your dissertation about how we can all support literacy learning better among Black boys and others who might feel marginalized in traditional classrooms. Yeah. For me to really speak to this, I really have to talk about the the instructor, right? The teacher participant that I was able to observe. Okay. Um, I interviewed. There were two things that really was pertinent to that question. First was the belief that the teacher had that every student can learn, but not everyone can teach. So that was first. And then the second would be how the teacher viewed the the students within his class. So, for example, when I say view, how he viewed them, I mean, he looked at them through a resource lens. And that was the theoretical framework of my study where I looked at uh, resource theories or assets-based pedagogies, right? So he thought that all the students had strengths, had weaknesses, but they had strengths in competencies and literacies and they had knowledge that they can contribute to a particular environment, right? And so he saw that his role as an educator was to bring that out of the young people. And so mm-hmm. many of the instructional practices that he utilized really was was geared towards how do we bring that out of them. So I think that right there was 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 a a point that needs to be highlighted, right? So so one of the instructional practices that he used was cold calling. Now, Mm -hmm. if you're in education, you know that, you know, cold calling is a really touchy topic, right? Mm -hmm. Some people might say that, no, cold calling is the worst thing to possibly do because, you know, you put kids on the spot, you're embarrassing them, right? But when you think of someone has having knowledge, you don't want them to just go by, skid by, right? Mm -hmm. Go under the radar. You want to pull that out of them. And Mm -hmm. so 
this particular teacher created routines and procedures so that he can pull that out of his black boys. And so, you know, he valued meaningful relationships, relationships from student to student, but also from teacher to student and in, in, in all the different dynamics of relationship within a, a specific context, right? So, so cold calling for him was one of his major instructional practices. Did you ask him specifically about the cold calling and how he thought about it? Was he calling on people based on his expectation that they would be able to provide something valuable to the conversation? Because I think cold calling could get a bad rap because sometimes it's used to point out that people are not paying attention or embarrass students. But if he's doing it with a different intention, and it sounds like in general, his intentions are very positive because he believes in the potential of the students, that he's Mm -hmm. using it for the purpose of highlighting students' resources and knowledge and understanding and background understanding. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I did ask him. So he told me that in doing one of our interviews, he, he mentioned that he used to do destiny sticks. Destiny sticks is where you have a cup with popsicle sticks and kids' names around there. And so you ask them a question, they answer it, you take that stick out. So that way you're able to call on every son, everyone in the class. So the idea mm-hmm. is that he wanted everyone to participate. But mm-hmm. then during our professional development, where we were sharing uh, best practices around student voice and so on and so forth, he then grabbed that idea, that cold calling, because there was a discussion that ensued around the benefits of cold call and how you can do it and, and why people use it and, and don't use it. And so from that, he took it as one of the, the pillars of his practice. And so how he uses it is not as a way to punitively call on someone or call out someone. In fact, one example was he was having a whole class discussion and he called on one student. And that student didn't have the answer. And then what ended up happening was that he moved on to continue the conversation, right? He shared a little information. He called on another student, but then he went back to that student. Mm-hmm. And then that student then shared his answer. So then I, I spoke to that student. And I said, hey, I noticed this happened. Tell me about that. And one of the things that he said was that, well, like when he called on me first, I didn't have the answer. And then, you know, he sh- he went on to his peers and then he added a little bit and then I thought about it and then I was able to come up with the answer, right? Mm-hmm. So therein lies the use of this practice in such a way that supports students. So mm-hmm. he wasn't using it very like punitively. It was really an opportunity because he, he believed that that student could contribute. And mm-hmm. then, you know, another thing that he mentioned and you could also observe was that he didn't care how big your contribution was, it was just that you were contributing, right? Mm-hmm. So when we think about mm-hmm. like our role within the broader society, we all play a part, right? My, it might be in voting, but it could also be in educating. It could be in provoking. It could be in asking questions that lead someone else to then share information and so on and so forth. But it's how we process information and then what we decide that is important to share or ask questions and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you've talked about two uh, elements of his approach. One is his positive belief and high expectations related to his students. One is the specific action of cold calling. What are some other classroom management practices that he used that you think supported their literacy learning? Yeah. 
you know, I also think that his his practice was very discourse driven. So mm-hmm. in his classroom, there were a lot of discussions. There were partner pairs, right? And they would oftentimes engage in, in discussions. And many of his his activities, his learning activities were such that they needed to collaborate and, and share their ideas with their peers, right? He was very intentional in like, make sure you're getting this from your partners, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're discussing mm-hmm. this with your partners. But he was very mm-hmm. intentional in creating activities and, and lessons where kids had to collaborate with their partners. And mm-hmm. then there were the whole group discussions that he also uh, facilitated. Those many times the kids took a, a critical role in driving those discussions. It was through their questions or through their wonderings or their contributions. You know, within the written curriculum, he also utilized a lot of multimedia videos, mm-hmm. you know, audios, films, and questioned it, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that you were just getting information. He was also teaching them how to question these different things too. In what way was he having them question the media? Yeah. So, you know, he would he would ask questions such as like, you know, what what's going on here? Or whose voice is here? Or why did this happen? Right. So one of the texts that they read in their class was called New Kid. And mm-hmm. in this book, you know, to give you a small synopsis of it, it's um it's a graphic novel. And it was this black boy that was going to a predominantly white school. And in the school there were about like one other one or two other black kids there. And their teacher would recommend books that were about like having a tough life, right? Or the struggles, the mean streets of X, Y, Z. And so, and the teacher was offering those books to the kids and kids are like, well, my parents are CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know what this is. Right. So, so then he would often ask those questions. There was one time where one of the kids in the book called the kid Morio Oreo. Mori is was a black boy and they called him Morio Oreo, you know, as as a way to, you know, be stereotypical or to mm-hmm. be uh racist. So, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. oftentimes he would engage in those conversations, right? Mm-hmm. With with the students and you know, question why was this why was this said or, or why is this offensive? And those kinds of conversations Mm-hmm. were also a part of the practice. And that allowed mm-hmm. students to think critically about what they were learning, whose voices being heard, or why things were the way they were. Mm-hmm. They were no longer just reading the book you know, to just understand the words that's happening, but really mm-hmm. thinking critically mm-hmm. about it. About the meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Could, we, could we go back to something else that you said? Yeah. Um, you mentioned collaboration. I'm wondering if you could talk about that because that seems especially important for a democratic society. How do we get students to talk to each other, listen to each other, work together actively? Meanwhile, he was doing this in the context of their learning of literacy skills. So I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the specific activities around that. Yeah. So first, first I want to really highlight environment is critical. Right. When you're having tough conversations, when you're having difficult conversations, whether it be race related, whether it be current events, whether it be the the truth about American history or the different truths about American history or those kinds of things, the environment is critically important. 
you know, in my in my dissertation, I said they need to have a safe space. Mm-hmm. After my dissertation, in in doing more reading and so on, I've now changed that. Not, they don't necessarily need to have a safe space. They need to have brave spaces, right? Because to brave, s- brave spaces, right? Okay. Safe spaces can mean that you're in class and you know you're being cold called. And it's safe to say, I don't know, mm-hmm. right? Brave means I don't know, but let me find out. Or I mm-hmm. don't know the answer, but let me share what I do know, right? So brave spaces is, is where we allow young people to be in the work, to mm-hmm. take ownership in the work, to be active, right? To be taking risk, right? But only... In, in, in a healthy kind of environment where the teacher believed that his role was to build relationship with the kids, but also for the kids to build relationship with each other. I remember one, one lesson, there was a, one of the assignments where they had taken an assessment and he wanted the students to kind of figure out where did they went wrong on this particular assessment. So, you know, he had the first question. He said, he asked the students to write what that question was about. Then it was like, you know, check with a partner and see what they think about what you shared. And so they had to check with their partner. And then it was like, you know, if or if you and your partner agree, then do this part of the assignment. If you disagree, I want you all to discuss it and come up with a new answer, right? Or, or mm. what do you guys agree? And then meet with me or whatever the case was. And so mm. there, again, he's putting the onus on the students to do the work, right? So mm-hmm. I would say for you know social studies teachers, right, creating that that dynamic within the classroom where kids feel you know safe to engage in really difficult conversations is critically important, and then creating intentional learning experiences where they can share their opinions, their ideas, their thoughts, and then implementing texts, offering texts from different perspectives, offering different medium to really provoke students to grapple with tough concepts and topics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, Quasi, I really like that concept. It sounds like that really captures so much of what you are describing overall this creation of brave spaces seems to encapsulate the teacher's belief that these students have resources and big ideas and potential Mm -hmm. as well as his strategy for cold calling because he believes they have something to offer as well as his belief in dialogue yeah um um as well as uh, some of the other things that you're talking about critical analysis of um you know, of texts and, and media because they can do it because they can be critical thinkers and um, they have something to offer. For sure. For sure. For sure. You know, and I see that even at at my level. So I teach sixth grade English language arts and um, I see that right. When I have my students have debates and things like that, that's another way too, right? Like debates. That's, that's, uh, that was something I remember Mm -hmm. doing in, in high school, but I don't think the, the space, the environment was conducive for me to perform at a high level. So even even as I reflect on my own experience and then the teaching practices that I engage in, 
or even what Mr. King, my, my participant, engaged and used in his practice. I had experiences where some of my most challenging students behaviorally mm-hmm. or my low performance students by school standards, they were MVPs of, of debates, right? Because they mm-hmm. have skills. Maybe they're, mm-hmm. maybe they're very, um, they have strong opinions, right? Mm-hmm. Or, and those are skills that we can really harness in in way of making them successful academically. So I think there's so much there. Once we start to look at the strengths that each of our students have, we have so much to work with. One of the things that Mr. King said was that when we think of like LeBron James or like famous basketball players, new like coaches at the collegiate level, they would review those films and they would try to mimic Michael Jordan or a mm-hmm. LeBron or Kyrie Irving and, and those guys. Why is it that educators don't do that? If we have a student that's really good at writing, why is it that we're not on full display that student's writing? If there's a student that's really good at oration, right, or mm-hmm. debates, or maybe they, they have the ability to get kids to you know, work together, they're leaders. Why are we mm-hmm. not leveraging that within our classroom space to help mm-hmm. all students be successful? Mm-hmm. Someone mm-hmm. who is resourceful, someone who's looking at students and young people through that asset-based mindset or a resource-based mindset can then see the possibilities mm-hmm. to help kids be critical thinkers, you know, motivated, right? Engage in, in um, civic engagement, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, to take the next step, what opportunities can we create? so that they can take their learning in school into the real world, into their communities, Mm, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. But if you believe that they can, and you believe that they have the power to to influence their community or people around them outside of their classroom space, then you'll create those opportunities for them. Mm -hmm. Did Mr. King have students explore how their learning could apply to the world beyond the classroom also? I can't remember evidence or artifacts that I might have collected that really like Mm -hmm. speak to that as much. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's real world implications, right? I know there was one, there was one moment in class where going back to that book, uh, the teacher kept confusing one of the black boys for a student that she had the prior year. And Mm -hmm. the, the student she had the prior year was a really challenging and difficult kid behaviorally. So, Mm -hmm. The teacher then engaged, Mr. King then engaged in a discussion. How many of you had similar experiences, X, Y, Z? And then the teacher then said, I have had X, Y, Z experiences, right? So mm-hmm. the teacher then allowed the kids to see that you're experiencing these things, but even as a, a, an educated adult, I've also had similar experiences. And then we also mm-hmm. saw it in the book. So really creating those different layers, I mm-hmm. think, offers the opportunity for kids to see that what they're learning in the classroom has real-world implications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, real-world implications. That's really important. So I'm wondering about what you were saying before. When you were talking about 
looking at models of practice like a Lebr- LeBron James or Michael Jordan in athletics, are you saying that we need to look at models of good teaching practice more often? Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, in some ways, yes, but also mm-hmm. we should be looking at good models within our classroom. Mm-hmm. Right? What strengths do our kids have that we can leverage? Mm-hmm. This came about when we were talking about mm-hmm. uh, when the teacher was talking about differentiation. He believed that we needed to look at what the kids were producing and then using that as exemplars for other kids, right? So mm-hmm. there's one time where one of the kids' writing was exceptional and mm-hmm. he displayed it on the board and then he critiqued it or, you know, the kid's name was not there, but then the kids critiqued it. And then the kids would make comments like, wow, this is really good. This is really good. But it was one of their peers. So now mm-hmm. they're like, wow, no, this student is a really good writer. I want right. to be just like him, right? Right. But then it wasn't like it was like romanticized in a way where it was out of the reach for for maybe like the lowest performing students or someone who's not as good of a writer. It was like, this is really good because it has these particular characteristics or these are the, the elements of this writing that makes it really good. But this is how we can improve, right? Mm-hmm. And then now all students in the classroom realizes that there's things that you're good at and then there's some things that we need to work on. And even that kid that wrote a really beautiful essay can still improve in X, Y, and Z, right? So mm-hmm. he was talking about like scaffolding and instruction. Just like basketball players review tapes and so on and so forth and learn from each other, we can also create that same kind of environment in the classroom for our kids where they're learning from each other. I think that's great. It reminds me of the concept of modeling that comes from some of the research on self-efficacy. When we see a model, especially a model that is like us or that we can relate to in some way, it can give us the message that we too can achieve that. Yeah. And can I just go back to the point you made? Yes, we can learn so much from other teachers who do things very well. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much that I've learned from just watching this teacher do his his Mm -hmm. thing in this classroom. I was able Mm -hmm. to say, oh, I'm going to take these things and add it to my practice to be better, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. These things, it worked for him, but not necessarily for me, right? And Mm -hmm. so I think we should be looking at teachers, all teachers, good teachers, bad teachers, mediocre teachers, and looking to see what's what practices do they have that we can steal, that we can mm-hmm. borrow mm-hmm. and make it mm-hmm. our own to improve what we're doing in the classroom. So I think the same model that that basketball um, analogy works for you know teachers use in the classroom, but also teachers and how we can improve as instructional leaders. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the big ideas behind this podcast. Yeah. I want to highlight great practice and let all the listeners learn from that and adapt what they find valuable. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of these great practices that you've observed and that you've analyzed and some of which you've made into your own. Uh, It's been really great to talk to you, Kwesi. Is there anything else you would like to share before we go? You know, when I got to say thank you to you, you know, you no, know, Brett, there's often, it was a journey. You asked a question earlier about like my journey. And so there's a journey mm-hmm. also where I was able to 
this this uh this milestone and to be where I am both academically but professionally. And you are to you know be highlighted too because when I first entered into the doctoral program, actually I wasn't even a part of the program yet. I had just decided to take a class because I was waiting to see the results. You know, did I get into the program? I took a class with you. And I remember, mm-hmm. you know, engaging in, in much of the very same conversations we're engaging in right now, because I know your work is so ingrained in, in civic engagement in high school and how do we improve uh, students' engagement outside of school or how do we get our citizenry to be more active, particularly within high school, social studies context, right? But mm-hmm. I said all that to say that after finishing that class, I still wasn't admitted into the program. And, you know, it was the conversation that you and I had where you helped me to get to this part, right? Like you mm-hmm. recommended uh, an, a professor whose work was very central to my work. And that professor helped me get throughout the process. And so thank you for seeing my potential. Thank you for advocating for me and, and doing that. Because you could have said, well, he finished my class and <laughs> that could have been the end of my story. But you saw to it that I was able to have my story continue. And that work has really helped me as a, as a practitioner, as a researcher, as a professional. I know it will help me as a leader. And so it's been a journey that's continuing. And I thank you for being a part of my journey and for helping me to rewrite my story. Well, I was so glad to have you in that class. And I'm so glad that I met you and was able to you know, play a small part in encouraging you to move forward because you know, we're all playing a role here to you know, help educate the next generation. And it's great that you are so energetic and passionate and analytical about you know, how we can do this to the best of our ability collectively. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to talk to you, Quasi. Um, you know, Best of luck with the next phases of your journey and be in touch because it sounds sure. like you're doing so many different things right now. I mean... You- yeah. So I'm currently... I'm back in school. See, I love learning, right? So <laughs> I'm back in school. Wow. So I'm, um, you know, I'm doing a, a CAS, um, but you know, I'm getting my administration, both district leadership, building leadership uh, credentials. I am doing an internship I am also one of the directors for Liberty Partnerships, Liberty Partnership Program, which offers wraparound services to young people within the fifth grade all the way up to high school. And that program is really meant to support kids you know, through mentorship, to academic, to so looking at their socio-emotional and help support them so that they can graduate and enter into post-secondary uh, education or career paths. So I just finish directing one of those programs. It was a summer program, five-week program. It was Sports Academy. So, you know, that and also my work in the community, I'm for the people, you know. (laughs) Again, as I mentioned in my story earlier, so many people within this community, Albany Schools, the city of Albany, have poured into me professionally, academically, personally. I've had so many mentors, right? And so this is my time to give back. So mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. why I do all what I do. And mm-hmm. so thank you for having me here. I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Quasi. That was Dr. Quasi Burgess, middle school teacher in the city school district of Albany here in upstate New York. 
please visit the show notes to learn more about Quasi and his work. And this is Education for Sustainable Democracy. I'm Brett Levy. To support the show, please subscribe, like the show on Facebook, and share an episode with a friend. When you give the show a high rating in your podcast app, it helps other people learn about the show. So please tap that five-star rating. Thank you so much. To learn more about the show and check out many of our other episodes, please visit esdpodcast.org. Thank you so much for listening and for all your support, and please stay engaged.